This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to the About Books podcast and program. In this episode, we're going to introduce you to Jeff Deutsch. He has a new book out. It's called In Praise of Good Bookstores, and he's a director of a bookstore co-op in Chicago. But first, let's start with this week's publishing news. Well, recently in Congress, there was a hearing about challenged and banned books. The House Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties heard from students, parents, librarians, and teachers, as well as author and civil rights activist Ruby Bridges. Congressman Jamie Raskin, a Democrat of Maryland, is the chair of the subcommittee, and here's part of his opening statement. Many books are being targeted for censorship these days simply because they address racism or white supremacy as historical or sociological realities or address human sexuality uh, or LGBTQ issues because the protagonist or author is gay or a person of color or for some other allegedly objectionable reason. The vice chair of the committee is Nancy Mace. She's a Republican from South Carolina, and we want to show you a portion of her opening statement as well. Public universities and colleges frequently run afoul of the First Amendment freedom by enforcing broad or overly broad speech codes or by chilling speech across college campuses, using biased response teams to investigate thought criminals. There have also been disturbing campaigns on these campuses to expel students, fire faculty, or disinvite speakers who hold views that are considered to go against the progressive consensus or groupthink. These universities and colleges are unlawfully stifling speech to coddle young adults at a time when their educational careers, uh, in their educational careers where they should be exposed to a variety of ideas and perspectives. So that's a little bit from the recent hearing on banned and challenged books that was held in Congress. Now, the full hearing will be played on Book TV in the near future. Also in the news, author Jack Higgins has died at the age of 92. The British thriller writer was best known for his 1975 novel, The Eagle Has Landed, that was later adapted into a film, of course, with Michael Caine and Donald Sutherland. Mr. Higgins was the author of close to 80 books that sold over 250 million copies worldwide. 
In other news, the 87th annual Annisfield Wolf Book Awards that, quote, recognize books that have made important contributions to our understanding of racism and human diversity were presented last week. This year's nonfiction winners, George Macari's Of Fear and Strangers and Taya Miles' All That She Carried, which has won several awards. A Lifetime Achievement Award was also given to author and publisher Ishmael Reed. Now, according to NPD BookScan, which tracks these figures, print book sales are down close to 9% for the first quarter of 2022. Adult nonfiction sales have slipped over 10%. And now we want to introduce you to Jeff Deutsch. He is the director of the Seminary Co-op Bookstores in Chicago. Mr. Deutsch, what's unique about your shops? Well, we actually have about 100,000 volumes on the shelf, which is interesting, but we also have almost exclusively academic, scholarly, and literary books. But what's more interesting is what we don't have, which is uh, gifts, sidelines, non-book items, coffee, wine, the sorts of things that most bookstores today use to make their bookstores work. So can you buy a bestseller at Seminary? You certainly can. Uh, if the community is interested in a bestseller, then uh, we'll certainly have it on the shelf. Um, but we only really carry the books that the community is interested in. Um, so we are reflecting that community as well. And there are plenty of bestsellers that do make make it onto our shelves. So what are some of the popular titles at Seminary? Well, uh, it's interesting because the titles themselves don't sell all that quickly. So we might have occasionally a book that will that will sell quickly and sell well. Um, but most of the books that we carry are books that sit on the shelves for a long time. They sell a single copy, maybe two or three in a given year. And it's actually that the sales of these a broad range of titles that make up our bestseller lists. That said, when there's a new book by Wendy Doniger that comes out, we sell quite a few of those. We had a Martha Nussbaum book recently that, that sold very well. Um, we Eve Ewing, anytime that she puts out a book, they sell very well. Last uh, night we had, or two nights ago, we had Ocean Vong, uh, for uh, which will I expect be a bestseller. And it was the second time we've had him, and we've sold uh, quite a few of those as well. Well, Mr. Deutsch, you mentioned uh, Martha Nussbaum. She's a philosopher mm-hmm. at the University mm-hmm. of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Are, are, you an, are you located near academic sites? Yeah, so we're um, in the Hyde Park neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Uh, it's where um, Obama is uh, setting up a presidential library, and Michelle Obama grew up right, uh, right near the neighborhood. Uh, and we are on the campus, actually. We're in a campus building at the University of Chicago, uh, but we are not a uh, part of the University of Chicago. Uh, we also have a second store, 57th Street Books, which is where uh, uh, President Obama did the book signing for his first book, Dreams from My Father, the launch event that had maybe a dozen people or so show up. Uh, and that is a neighborhood bookstore with a great children's department and quite a few bestsellers and uh, genre fiction, cookbooks, things like that, a more traditional neighborhood bookstore. Well, I think we buried the lead a little bit here. <laughs> this is a nonprofit bookstore, correct? That's right. That's correct. Right. We are the first and only not-for-profit bookstore in the country whose mission is book selling, and we're re- incredibly proud of it. But we also uh, it feels important to us to say out loud what the work that we're doing is. Uh, so, you know, in the 21st century, no reader needs a bookstore to buy a book, and no bookstore can make a living selling new books exclusively. And our argument, and even though I should say the argument of the structure of the store, is that 
we do need bookstores still, even though we don't need them to buy books necessarily. What is the product of the bookstore? Well, we think it's the browse. We think it's the space that's created in a physical location to bring readers in, have them discover, find surprises, delightful surprises on the stacks, build community around the browsing activity. And that that is actually a cultural endeavor and it's a civic endeavor and ours is a cultural institution. And so we are looking to find a different way to finance the endeavor rather than an inherited retail model that we think is not really built to support the kind of work that we do. Well, Jeff Deutsch, in your new book, In Praise of Good Bookstores, you indicate that business models are secondary to good bookstores, in your view. Well, I, I will say, right, um, most booksellers do not go into bookselling in order to make a lot of money. Um, and retail can be a very profitable endeavor. Uh, any retailer who wants a profitable store will not set up a bookstore. Those who do set up bookstores, whether they're for-profit, not-for-profit, uh, you know, mission-driven, uh, you know, selling bestsellers or whatever the case, those, those booksellers, for the most part, are in it because they love books, just like in publishing and just like the endeavors that, that you're doing. Um, you know, there, there's a great love for uh, not just the written word, but a certain kind of book, right? Uh, so you asked if we sell bestsellers. We certainly do. Um, it's pretty rare, though, that a celebrity biography, let's say, or a diet book will make our bestseller list or that even would make our shelves uh, because there's a certain sort of book that is not a media title. It's not something that is uh, ephemeral in a way that is meant to merely um, you know, provide either uh, uh, you know, tabloid-type news or uh, other sorts of scandalous. And even like uh, there's, a, there's a line from Edward Schills, a sociologist, he, he calls them puffy and pallid political biographies, uh, which uh, you know, we, won't, we won't sell quite, quite a few of those either. Uh, and what then is the bookseller's role in building these spaces? If they're not retailers, what in fact are they? And one of the things that I celebrate in the book is the work of the bookseller, which is not about buying and selling. If it was, we would be carrying different books and we would be setting up different models. It really is about filtration, looking at the 30,000 or so books that, um, that we look at each year. There are actually quite a few more published every year, about half a million. Um, selection, picking those books uh, and deciding that those are the ones for our community. Then assemblage, where we put them uh, together in these bouquets of whether it's the section itself or the front displays or a staff recommendations corner. And then the most important one for me, which is enthusiasm. Booksellers are professional enthusiasts. We are so excited about the books on our shelves and whether it's a book that came out a week ago or a year ago or a thousand years ago, we can tell you why you must read this book, why it is incredible and that it needs to be in the hands of the reader. So the ability to match the book to the reader and to do it with enthusiasm and to do it in a space that feels like the confines of a browse that we would uh, expect from a great bookstore, that really is the role of the bookseller today. And in your book, you write, quote, the work of bookselling, like the work of librarianship, is best practiced by those with a passion for catalogs, for sifting and selecting, <laughs> for filtering, arranging, and hopefully matchmaking. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. There's nothing more intoxicating to a bookseller than getting a stack of catalogs of all the news of the books that are coming out. It is incredibly exciting. And I will say, 
for some of us and those that carry uh, quite a few older books, which also distinguishes our store. We carry what's called backlist books that have been out for more than a year or two that are not driven by media attention or authors touring. Um, those books are, are every day. I'll look at what's sold, the few hundred titles that have sold that have come out uh, over the over the centuries, over the decades. And it's and so exciting to see what people are reading and what they're rediscovering and uh, or rereading. And there's so much that's out there. We when I wrote the book, there were 20. This is in 2019. Um, there were 20 million books published in the history of publishing. And our bookstore carries 100,000 books. And I do the math in the book of how many books I can read. And I'm not a quick reader, but I'm a, I'm a steady reader. And I can read about 7,000 books in my lifetime if I live a nice full life. So really in thinking about all of those books, the abundance of books that are out there, part of the bookseller's role is to help sift, to help the reader figure out how they can choose their 3,000 books or their 10,000 books or 15,000 books that they'll get to in their lifetime. Well, before we leave the business model part of this conversation, even a nonprofit has to at least break even, doesn't it? Right. And possibly make extra money so it can grow. That's right. That's right. Well, so we were, uh, we're 60 years old now, and we were uh, 58 years old when we went nonprofit, and that was right before the pandemic. Um, however, we had been losing money for about 25 years, depending on how one looks at it. And by that, I mean, the retail wasn't making money. We were raising, already raising money from institutions, individuals, uh, uh, other you know, foundations, places like that, who felt really strongly that this was an important cultural endeavor. Our shift to the nonprofit model was us saying out loud and definitively that our role is not to make money through retail. We're really looking to uh, forge a new path for the future of bookselling. And not that every bookseller would follow this, but that there would be a path that other booksellers can follow where they acknowledge that they are not in it to make money. Um, I, I didn't found it. I didn't build it. I don't own it. And I'm just stewarding it now. There are, but there are people who came before me who um, did establish it. There are stores today, there are young booksellers today who would love to get into this business and build a career and serve their community in this way. And it is that cultural endeavor, but there is no model to support them. The remuneration in bookselling is pitiful. It's worse than in publishing. It's worse than uh, public school teaching. I mean, it really, it's that, it's that, um, it's that bad. And I'm not looking to, you know, uh, just raise more money for booksellers, but I am looking to distinguish the work of bookselling and to try and acknowledge that if there is a cultural endeavor here, then actually the seminary co-op for 25 years wasn't losing money and we weren't getting charity. We actually were, uh, you know, creating an environment and having folks in, invest in and support that environment. And that was a successful endeavor. It has been a successful endeavor. We want to no longer apologize for the wise inefficiencies that make our bookstore so special. We want to build a structure that is deliberate so that we can actually grow and do more with it and create more careers in this in this work and feature the books that really are not featured elsewhere. And you asked what distinguished the store earlier on. We'll say that so many university press titles, small press titles, books by underrepresented authors, books by uh, you know, uh, publishers that might not be getting much press, those find a prominent place on our shelves. And the ability to discover those titles is something that will be a thing of the past if we don't have spaces in which to discover them. So if somebody walks into Source, what should they expect as far as atmosphere, et cetera? 
source booksellers in Detroit. Is that? I, I'm sorry, in in the seminary. Sorry, seminary. Okay. No, I mean I can. I'd love to talk about source in Detroit because it's a wonderful bookstore as well. It is. I've, um, we've been there. Right. Yeah. And they're, they and they focus on on nonfiction titles. Um, and, and you might actually expect to find a very similar thing, which is a, a carefully selected and a and a intentionally assembled uh, collection of books that are focused on what the community around them cares about, especially serious nonfiction and literature. Um, uh, they source does uh, less literature, but we will have serious nonfiction, um, literature, poetry, and really focusing on the social sciences, the humanities, and literature throughout the ages, but also some kind of you know, complete collections of, of specific authors. So we'll always have the complete James Baldwin on the shelf, for instance, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, we'll always have the complete Alice Munro um, or you know, Toni Morrison, or, you know, writers like that. Um, but we're also gonna keep up with the newer authors. So Ocean Vong is a good example, uh, who has two collections of poetry now and one novel. We had his first volume of poetry uh, on the shelf to begin with. I mentioned Eve Ewing earlier, uh, who published an amazing collection of poetry called Electric Arches uh, with the Haymarket, which is a small not-for-profit publisher. And we we sold, that was a bestseller for us. But then the University of Chicago Press put out a book of hers about the Chicago Public Schools uh, closures and the failures of uh, the city of Chicago to support, uh, to support those students. And that was a serious book so sold really well for us on our front table. And then she, since then, she's put out another collection of poetry and some Marvel comics. And we carry all of them, and they do very well for us. And I expect we'll be carrying them for years. So Jeff Deutsch, when Barnes & Noble and Borders were going full guns, was that distressing to you with all the retail <laughs> that they did of non-book items? Um, well, it was, but I will tell you, I was an employed by Barnes & Noble at the time, and I, uh, they were a wonderful company to work for. I was with them in the 90s and through the early aughts, and I'm excited by what James Daunt is doing, actually. I think that he's doing really great work with them, and they are a bookstore and a bookseller, and that matters to me. Um, I remember, it was in the late 90s, I was working at a Barnes & Noble in Tucson, and it was the first time, I was not happy about getting CDs in. Uh, even though I love music, I wanted it to be just a bookstore. But I remember the first time we got a, I think it was a puzzle. Uh, maybe it was a game, it was a puzzle. I was furious. I was, I was shaking my fist. I said, this is a bookstore. We shouldn't have puzzles. And I was much more of a purist than, than I am now. Uh, your, your viewers might be surprised to hear um, because I actually think a bookstore that wants to carry puzzles, that wants to carry coffee, that wants to carry greeting cards, that's fantastic. I, I have no issues with a bookseller who makes deliberate curatorial decisions uh, about what they carry. My concern, and this will speak to the larger concern than what Barnes & Noble and Borders brought, my concern is that the business model is built so that the only way in which to make have any chance at making money is to sell things other than books. And that is not a good model for one of our great cultural treasures. And uh, to think that in order to do our work, we, it's an economic necessity, that is the thing that I find uh, very distressing. And the corollary to that is that Amazon, which is the bigger issue um, than Barnes & Noble or Borders ever was, they are the largest seller of books in the country, but they're not booksellers, right? So the work that I mentioned of uh, filtration and selection and assemblage and enthusiasm, they don't do any of that. They put the books up and um, you, know, you can find them there. I can tell you that if you are looking for my book um, right now, you'll find that it's a bestseller on Amazon. It's number one in the category of international finance and law. Now, this book, it has absolutely nothing to do with international finance or law. They're, um, they're the bookseller is there. Uh, I guess they made a mistake, whatever the case. And they're also, um, as of last week, we're uh, 
discounting it by 11 cents as though that is somehow a bargain in a way that paying the 1995 price is, is uh, you know, is, is not a good deal. So what's the issue when the largest seller of books is not a bookseller? It means that the entire infrastructure of bookmaking and book work is not supported. And the remuneration that I mentioned is one thing um, for booksellers, but it's true for editors and authors and agents and distributors and everywhere along the way. And it is an incredibly precarious endeavor right now. And I would, I do not want to see what will happen if we cannot maintain this industry. Well, besides your own co-op bookstores seminary, what are some of your favorite bookstores in the country? There's about yeah. 2,500 independents left, correct? Um, depending on how you count them, yes. And, uh, and I will say there, um, most communities, um, I say most bookstores are, are fantastic and they really should be reflecting their communities. I mentioned source booksellers and they're absolutely one of my favorites. Um, and part of it is because they are so of their, of their community and the booksellers who run it, it's a, a mother and daughter team are just absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I was in uh, Cambridge yesterday at the Harvard Bookstore, which is one of my favorite stores. I spent about four hours there uh, myself just browsing, and uh, and they continue to do an incredible job. Um, there's a bookstore called Point Reyes Books at Point Reyes Station that's run by one of uh, uh, the most passionate booksellers in the world and one of the best uh, book, and his partner is one of the best book workers in the world as well who does other literary endeavors and they have taken a store that I used to shop at and uh, and it was it was a good store uh, and they've, they've made it exceptional uh, exceptional city lights booksellers in San Francisco uh, is going strong and they have a, a, a vision for bookselling that is incredible and then one of my personal favorites that doesn't get a lot of attention on the national scene uh, is a bookstore called Mo's Books, uh, founded by Mo Moskowitz, whose daughter uh, Taurus now runs it. So again, another one that stayed in the family. And to, as far as I'm concerned, that is as wonderful and idiosyncratic a book space as I have found. And I personally get lost in those stacks any chance I get to go to Berkeley. Well, your new book, In Praise of Good Bookstores, was published by Princeton University Press. Is it a lamentation? It is not. Thank you for asking that. It is a celebration. Booksellers are professional enthusiasts. We don't need lamentations. I have, want to take the 25 years I've spent in bookselling and all of that enthusiasm for single titles that I have put into the world and use that to help support the bookstores and help anyone who has not been in a bookstore recently to remind them what incredible spaces of discovery and rumination these uh, these stores are. But those who have not, to try and you know find one, to go back. There are plenty of people I work on a college campus and I have for 15 years. There are young folks who have never had the pleasures of browsing in a bookstore. They should. It is a critical part of becoming a human being and finding oneself and building a better life. And books are very democratic in a sense, aren't they? Because you and I or anybody else mm -hmm. who can afford one or can read can go in and buy the same book. Right. Well, that's absolutely true. And even if one couldn't afford them, and I, I, one of the things I write about is how, as a young man, I couldn't afford them, and I would go into stores and I would browse. And the ethos of most bookstores, I think certainly today, is that, of course, browse, sit around, read, read the books, do what, do what you need to do. Um, we want you in the space engaging those books. And the idea that in order to become educated in our society one needs a, a specialized degree that it's going to cost you know six figures seven figures depending on uh how, how far you go with it and only in that way will will, will we become educated well I, I 
advocate for and celebrate a different model where we become learned and we become of the learning kind and of the ruminating kind. And we figure out the way in which we want to wander the stacks and we want to return to certain books and that there is no canon that is just, uh, that is homogenous. I, I, come from an Orthodox Jewish background, and I speak to the joys for me of finding these havens of heterodoxy and the singular books that uh, each of us will find that create our own personal canon and ultimately our own character. And at the end of In Praise of Good Bookstores, you have a quote, when a bookstore closes, an argument ends. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, Adam, Adam Gopnik uh, wrote that about a, a wonderful Parisian bookstore that closed uh, seven years ago now, I think. And that's absolutely true. I, I'm hoping, too, though, that when a bookstore either establishes, let's say, as a not-for-profit, uh, or opens, an argument begins, and maybe a dialogue begins. And that dialogue can help a community grow. It can help individuals within it grow. And imagine possibilities that we otherwise could not have imagined. Jeff Deutsch is the director of the Seminary Co-op Bookstores and the author of this book, In Praise of Good Bookstores. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And this is About Books, Book TV's podcast and program which looks at the latest nonfiction books and publishing news. Well, here are some books being published this week. American Enterprise Institute fellow Matthew Continetti looks at the last century of American conservatism in his new book, The Right. And in the many lives of Andrew Young, Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Ernie Suggs recounts the life and political career of Georgia's first black congressman, Carter Administration Ambassador to the UN, and former mayor of Atlanta. Retired Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding has a new book out. It's called War Without Rules, and in it, he weighs in on China's military and foreign policy goals. Also being published this week, in Jill, the Associated Press's Julie Pace and Darlene Superville profile First Lady Jill Biden. And Financial Times Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator Gideon Rockman offers his thoughts on the rise of authoritarian leaders around the world in his book, The Age of the Strongman. Well, this weekend on our author interview program, former Republican Congressman Will Hurd of Texas says that America needs a quote-unquote reboot, and he offers his thoughts on how to move the country forward. Here's a preview. We're at a moment where 72% of Americans think the country is on the wrong track. This is not just, this this sentiment has not just existed under this administration. This sentiment has existed and grown over the last couple of administrations. And so the country feels like we got to do something different. Yes, we are the most powerful nation that has ever existed on this country. Capitalism has uplifted people out of, you know, to, 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 to achieve heights that were previously unimaginable. And, but we have to make sure that this continues. And what's getting in the way is the inability 
to get big things done because of, of political gridlock yeah. within within Washington D.C. and now it's and that is metastasizing to state capitals and city councils and, and such. And so for us, for for me, this this notion that. Um, America has become exceptional when we play a role and we lead, and the world is interconnected. When my man George Washington gave his his farewell address and said, "Watch out about entanglement with other countries," the world was very different back then, and so so now we're so interconnected. But we have to we elected officials, people in in administrations, have to continue to make the case why these things matter. We have to make the case. Why does t- Taiwan matter to the, the 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 couple that owns that coffee shop in the in, in the Midwest, right? Why does the person that's selling you know uh, skiing attire why should they care? Why should my brother who sells Thanks for cable? Thanks. Shout out to the most beautiful <laughs> congressional districts in Utah, Absolutely. where we have yeah. Park City, Snow Basin, some of the best ski resorts. Thank you for that. No, no, of course, of course. Um, you know, my brother, my brother sells cable. Why does he know? And, and we have to make these cases. And, and sometimes, right, uh, those of us that, that are involved in these things have failed to articulate why this stuff matters. And that was former Republican Congressman Will Hurd on his new book. A reminder that Afterwards airs every Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Book TV. It's also available as a podcast. Finally, here's a look at some of the current best-selling nonfiction books, according to the Los Angeles Times. Topping the list is Michelle Zahner's memoir, Crying in H Mart, which has been on bestseller lists for months. After that is Atomic Habits, James Clear's advice on breaking bad habits and forming good ones. Then it's Amy Bloom's memoir about her husband's Alzheimer's diagnosis and his decision to end his own life. It's her latest book, and it's called In Love. And that's followed by Atlas of the Heart, University of Houston professor Brene Brown's thoughts about making meaningful human connections. And wrapping up our look at the Los Angeles Times bestselling nonfiction books, David Wengrow and the late anthropologist David Graeber's critical look at the development of human society, the dawn of everything. Well, that's a quick look at this week's publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. A reminder that About Books is available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now app or wherever you get your podcasts.